0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Surveillance Report number 28, covering the privacy and security news from this past week. I'm your host this week, Nate Bartram of The New Oil. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters of TechLore, who believe in our mission in spreading privacy and security to the masses. TechLore is on Patreon, where you can receive exclusive perks, coffee for one-time donations, we accept Monero for private donations, and there are many free ways of supporting us as well, including contributing to our open-source projects. Thank you for helping to keep our content accessible for all. Let's go ahead and jump right into it. This week in data breaches, a cybercriminal leaked the full database of 77 million Nitro PDF user records. The records contain email addresses, full names, bcrypt hash passwords, titles, company names, IP addresses, and quote other system related information, unquote. Nitro is a service that allows users to create, edit, and sign PDFs and includes a cloud component for sharing documents. The database will probably be used to create targeted phishing campaigns. So the lesson here, use strong passwords. As I said, the passwords are hashed, so the stronger the password, the less likely those will be cracked. Use two-factor when it's available. Consider using a forwarding email service like a non-addy or simple login. Use a VPN whenever possible, and of course, always beware of phishing attacks. Data of customers and traders from the cryptocurrency exchange by Ucoin has allegedly been leaked online. This includes the data of about 325,000 users and includes names, email addresses, phone numbers, cryptocurrency transaction records, and bank details of users that may have been compromised. The company claims this was all dummy information or test data, but some users are claiming that that's their record that's online. So the defense is here. Be careful what information you disclose and use strong passwords or two-factor. Also, specifically when it comes to cryptocurrency, I would recommend using a a self-hosted or offline device or wallet, such as a ledger is a really popular one for Bitcoin. The patient data of Dutch COVID-19 patients is being sold on the criminal underground. This data includes home address, email, phone number, date of birth, and BSN, which is the Dutch version of a social security number. And it's going for about 30 to 50 euros per record, per person, that is. The two suspects who were believed to be responsible for leaking this data were employed in the Dutch Municipal Health Service call center, so they would qualify as rogue employees. So the lesson is to freeze your credit, don't use contact tracing apps if you can avoid it. I instead encourage using social distancing, cleaning everything, using masks, stuff like that. And of course, if you must use a contact tracing app because of local regulations or whatever, be sure to only fill out the minimum required information. Because unfortunately, rogue employees are becoming an increasingly common thing. And you just have to assume anything you put out there is going to be abused. A report from Australia shows that out of 519 data breach notifications from 2020, 33 of them came from the government itself. So the report focused on 519 data breaches that fell under the mandatory reporting requirements of Australia's Privacy Health Act, and this is actually only for the second half of 2020. According to this report, health was the most affected sector, with the most number of notifications, followed by finance. And for the first time this year, the Australian government was also in that top five category of most affected sectors. Unfortunately, the Privacy Act does not cover intelligence and national security agencies alongside state and local governments, public hospitals, and public schools, so none of those were included in this report. In total, malicious or criminal attacks accounted for 58% of all incidents, not just the government incidents, and human error was about 38%. It's also related to the last story, it's worth noting rogue employees are up to 35 from the previous 23. Again, rogue employees are becoming a bigger problem. The human error, just to share a real quick story, Uh, one time when I started working at a job, they emailed Mailed me the paperwork to go ahead and fill out and like get direct deposit and everything and they accidentally forgot to send me blank paperwork, they actually sent me someone else's filled out paperwork so I actually had their email address, their home address, their phone number, their next of kin, their bank numbers, their social security, I had all of that and fortunately they sent it to me who is an ethical human being and not someone else who just went, cool, free payday so I alerted them that they did that, I deleted it from my inbox which was not encrypted provider, but I mean, human error, these things happen, and you gotta be careful about this stuff. And our last data breach, Citrix's 2.3 million settlement offer for employees impacted by a data breach has been approved. This isn't really a data breach, but it pertains very directly to a data breach, so I decided to include it in this section. Citrix, who many of you may have heard of, suffered a data breach in 2019 that affected roughly 24,000 employees. According to the article, it was likely that password spraying was responsible for this particular data breach so password spraying for those who don't know is when the user or excuse me the attacker will pick a very common password and they will attempt to use it with different accounts so if they have a list of accounts chances are somebody is probably using a really weak password that way they can keep guessing passwords on different accounts without hitting the failed password limit or without alerting the it department that somebody keeps trying to get into this one account. So the data stolen back in 2019 included personally identifiable information, social security numbers, passport numbers, says limited health insurance data, driver's license, and financial account information. As the terms of this settlement, Citrix will provide credit monitoring, ID theft recovery, and up to $15,000 in reimbursement per claimant if they can prove expenses lost. And uh, just a little final twist of irony there, this the settlement has been agreed with, but it hasn't been officially ruled over. The final hearing will be held on Zoom. So, stand by for another data breach. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to companies. SonicWall says it was hacked using zero days in its own products. So, on the plus side, they are using their own products. SonicWall is a manufacturer of enterprise network devices, switches, routers, things of that nature. So, it only affected a specific combination of hardware and software, but... Given the nature of this company, it's likely that that was a pretty common configuration on their devices. Patching is not available at this time, but suggested mitigations include firewalls disabling remote connectivity and, of course, two-factor on admin accounts. Should go without saying, you should all be using two-factor whenever possible. There are even rumors going around that this was a possible ransomware attack. So... Lessons, use fireballs, especially on your routers. Do not use remote connectivity unless you absolutely have to, and of course, enable two-factor. ZDNet is reporting that cyber criminals are using deceased staff accounts to spread the Nemti ransomware. So this is a specific ransomware as a service. It's called Nemti, or it's also known as Nephilim. And they attacked a company network by using the account of a recently deceased admin. Pretty straightforward, just close unused accounts. They are a risk, whether it's you know, someone in your organization, or if you're an individual and you don't run that kind of stuff, disclose accounts you don't use. Get rid of your old MySpace. It's it's a risk. Four more security vendors have disclosed SolarWinds-related incidents. Last week, we talked about the SolarWinds incident, the hack. Mimecast, Palo Alto Networks, Qualys, and Fedless are all cybersecurity vendors who have announced that they were also impacted. Not a lot of details, just an update on the ongoing fallout of this whole SolarWinds incident. Like we said last week, this is a huge thing that America is going to be dealing with for a long time, and it's still going on. Chromebooks will now let you sign into websites using your fingerprint, or PIN if your Chromebook doesn't have a fingerprint reader. So basically, this is an optional feature that will require you to register websites with that feature. And then once they're registered, you can go ahead and like use your fingerprint or use a pin instead of remembering your password. So technically, many experts consider biometric authentication to be stronger because you can't really steal a fingerprint in a data breach the same way that you can steal a password. However, there is a really popular story about a woman who, this was five or six years ago, found out that her husband was cheating because while he was sleeping next to her on the airplane, she used his fingerprint and unlocked his phone as read his text messages. Also consider, and this is just my personal tinfoil hat, I haven't really like confirmed this with any experts, but consider that fingerprints must be stored somewhere, even in a digital format. So just the same way that passwords can be dehashed, I suspect that someday this technology will also be dehashed. So even though your fingerprint is being stored as a binary digital representation or whatever words they use on their website when they explain how they secure it, someday that's going to get reverse-engineered. And someone pointed out to me one time that you can't change your fingerprint when it gets compromised. Not to mention there is, of course, the privacy implication of linking your unique fingerprint with all those websites and logins. So on the whole, I would say this is a feature we can probably ignore. Just use strong passwords, use good two-factor... Steer clear of the biometric stuff. Bloomberg wrote an interesting expose on Sandvine, who you may remember from a few months ago, they were blocking internet in Belarus last year during a series of protests. The article also covers other surveillance technology companies similar to Sandvine. What I took away from the article that I thought was really interesting and worth sharing is that Sandvine actually used to be an ethical company before they got bought up by another company called Francisco Partners Management. And that's when they started saying, we don't care what our tech is used for as long as people pay. So it just goes to show how good companies and projects can turn bad, and we always need to be on our toes and be vigilant and keep up with the products we're using, and sometimes even the products we're not, so that we know what the alternatives are if something goes bad. Alright, I got a whole string of stories about Apple, so I'm going to cover all those at once. First up, the next iOS 14 version will force developers to ask permission to track you. And that will be coming in spring. On that note, Apple published a PDF called A Day in the Life of Your Data. It's kind of a product pitch. You know, it talks about how, like, the Apple debit card could protect you and blah, blah, blah. But it does do a really good job of highlighting how much data can be given out on any single innocuous day. It's, it's definitely worth a read and maybe even worth sharing around. And last but not least, in response to the upcoming iOS 14 update... Google has said they will stop collecting advertising IDs on iOS apps. I think this is just them finding a loophole. They don't want to openly admit that they're tracking you, lest people not consent. So they're just going to rely on other smaller means. ZDNet has reported that DDoS attacks are on the rise, and they are a big threat to businesses especially. Criminals are starting to use DDoS the same way that they're using ransomware, which is they're threatening companies that if they don't pay up, they will be attacked. Incidents are up 154% between 2019 and 2020. So this is a growing problem. Last but not least, TikTok has fixed a privacy issue that was discovered by the security research firm Checkpoint. So a few months ago, Checkpoint discovered a vulnerability that would have allowed an attacker to access user profile details and phone number, which would allow attackers to build a database of users for malicious purposes. Fortunately, TikTok has responded appropriately and fixed this. However, it is still worth noting that TikTok is still an incredibly invasive app, and we do not recommend using it if you can avoid it. Okay, let's move into browser news. There is a new attack that is letting attackers poison DNS cache records called DNS spook. So a a lot of this went a little bit above my head, and I apologize if I explain this incorrectly, but here's how I understood the article, is this is an attack that affects DNS mask, which is a DNS uh, software. I, I know I have it on my DDWRT router, I'm assuming it's very common in other places, And it potentially redirects victim to a spoof site that appears legit. So it'll have the little green lock. It'll say that it's got the certification. Everything will look legit, but it's not. So really, really scary. Fortunately, the attack is what the article called noisy. It requires a pretty decent amount of infrastructure. It's not a high barrier to entry per se, but it's definitely something that you're probably not going to see from like bored kids and script kiddies, as they call them. People like me. For those who have access to DNS mask and you know that you use it, make sure you update. And for those who aren't sure or don't know or do not have access, make sure that you're using an encrypted DNS like DOH or DOT. More Google advertising news, Google has announced plans to tackle privacy issues in online advertising, and we're covering this in this section because it specifically applies to Chrome 90, which will come out in April. Starting with Chrome 90, Google will block all third-party cookies. Contrary to Apple and Mozilla's nuke-all surveillance method, Google is attempting to find a compromise between the users and the advertisers, which I guess makes sense because they are an advertising company. The approach basically involves using AI to sort users into general categories, and then those categories can be targeted by advertisers instead of targeting individuals. Google is also proposing to proxy all advertising through their own so-called trusted server so that websites are not constantly making a ton of connections. So there's two obvious flaws here. Number one, Google is still tracking you so that they know what data group to put you in. And number two, Google is positioning themselves now as a single gateway between user data and marketers which is further cementing their monopoly which they pretty much already have a monopoly on I, I think this is just lip service for them to say oh we're trying to respect your privacy we're trying to find a solution and make everybody happy and they're they're still tracking you and finally google chrome will be deploying mitigations against a newly discovered nat slipstreaming attack or nat slipstreaming attack So Chrome will be blocking ports 69, 137, 161, 1719, 1720, 1723, 6566, and 10,080 in connection with ongoing NAT attacks, if that means anything to any of the more technically advanced listeners in the audience. A good firewall will block pretty much any port that you're not using except the common ones, and of course we will have a way to open those specific ports if you are using them for some reason. Firefox 85 has released, it has removed Flash, which we talked about last week, and it has added protection against Super Cookies. Super Cookies, from what I understand, are cookies that store more information than regular cookies and are much harder to delete. Mozilla's way of dealing with this is what they call network partitioning, which functions very similar to the Firefox containers plugin, if anyone has ever used that, I recommend it on my website, it's super amazing, and basically it helps to isolate each tab in its own little container to prevent super cookies from being able to track you from tab to tab. It is a huge step forward, and it allows for better protection for all users, so that's awesome. Let's move on to research. Apple has quietly added what they're calling a blast door to secure iPhones from zero-click attacks. On my own podcast, I talked a few weeks ago, or maybe a few months ago, about how there are zero-click iMessage attacks, where all the attacker has to do is send you a message, an iMessage, and it just works. This is, of course, a pretty advanced attack. I believe in the context I was talking about it, it was being used by nation states against journalists. But Apple has gone ahead and added a defense against that to iMessage. So that's really cool. The Washington Post has found that more than half of App Store privacy labels are false. Last week, I was praising the privacy labels in the app store, and I was like, these are really cool, these are a game changer. Well, apparently, I spoke too soon and did not hold on to my cynicism long enough. Now, granted, this was a very small-scale, not scientifically conducted study. So according to this article, a journalist with the Washington Post randomly selected a couple dozen apps and found that more than a dozen of them were lying about their privacy claims. So unless I misread the article, it doesn't explain how he went about determining that they were lying or how he chose the apps. And again, this was not a scientific study. He only chose a couple dozen apps. From a statistics perspective, I think your minimum pool size is supposed to be like a thousand or something like that. I think the really concerning part of this study was that Apple does not respond consistently. There are thousands of apps in the app store, maybe even millions. I don't know. There's a lot of them. And understandably, Apple cannot go through each and every single one and verify their privacy claims but if you report them they will respond the bad news is they're not being consistent some apps will get kicked off entirely while others simply get told to cut it out and shape up or change their privacy labels again i may have been too quick to praise those i apologize but that is something to be aware of that these privacy labels have the potential to be really amazing and be a game changer assuming that the developers will label them correctly And last but not least, a story that I'm sure is probably not new to most listeners, social media is damaging teenagers' mental health, according to a recently conducted report. Again, this is not new, but I think this is still really important to talk about because it shows that research is still being done on this topic, and it still holds up. Coincidentally, this came at just the right time because yesterday, TechLore published a video about deleting social media, and you should definitely go check it out. That will be in the show notes. I personally can attest, when I got into privacy, I went ahead and deleted all my social media, and... It made my life a lot better. Uh, I know I've said this in other places. I don't know if I've said it here. My conversations are much more intentional. They're much more meaningful. It definitely has made my life a lot better. Let's move into politics. Beginning here in the USA, Utah is testing the waters on making online catfishing a criminal act. Fortunately, this really only seems to apply to people who are intentionally pretending to be someone else for malicious purposes. If you are one of the people who uses general disinformation, you know, you use a fake name when you order something online or you use a a nearby hotel as your address on a rewards card, you should be fine. Just don't pretend to be, you know, your brother or your sister or your friend or your enemy as the case may be. The police chief of Houston is trying to blame end-to-end encryption for his own failure to undercover far-right cops. The article that we're sharing has a very clear bias, but I personally still think it makes a really good point. Cops in the U.S. are under heat right now, in case people don't know. There's a lot of accusations that there is a lot of white supremacy and racism that has infiltrated their ranks. And the police chief and president of the major cities chiefs association, Art Acevedo, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is trying to blame end-to-end encryption and the dark web for making it hard to weed out corrupt cops. In my opinion, this is just another attempt by law enforcement to paint end-to-end encryption as the bad guy and pass off some of their own responsibility and pretend like they don't have enough resources to find bad cops. Lawmakers in the U.S. are trying to take aim at what they call dark patterns. And you probably have seen these yourself. Dark patterns are defined as digital interfaces that subtly manipulate people. So you've probably seen these before. If you go to unsubscribe from an email list, it sends you another email going, are you sure you want to unsubscribe? Or, oh man, Amazon sticks out in my head as this one. When I tried to delete my Amazon account when I got into privacy, I literally had to contact customer support and wait for them to respond to me and then confirm that I wanted to delete my account. It's just, it's things like that that are designed to make it Harder for you to opt out or delete an account or pretty much anything that makes it harder for you to do whatever the company doesn't want you to do. Getting back to the article, the California Privacy Rights Act, which passed late last year, I believe, has outlawed some dark patterns, but it didn't really specify which ones it outlawed. That will be decided later this year when the California Privacy Protection Agency opens up. So hopefully they will lay down some really effective, very clear and good rules about which ones to outlaw, things that are actually helpful to consumers. And also hopefully other states will follow suit. An article from The Markup says that police are saying they can use facial recognition despite the bans. And, I mean, that headline pretty much sums it up. A lot of cities in the U.S. are starting to ban facial recognition, but unfortunately they still have very poorly worded loopholes that are making the bans effectively useless. Just to quote from the article, the bans in Pittsburgh, Boston, Alameda, California, Madison, Wisconsin, and Northampton, Massachusetts, and East Hampton, Massachusetts, all have language in the regulations that may allow local police to continue using facial recognition through state and federal agencies or other private sectors. So basically, as long as the police department itself does not control that facial recognition tech, it's okay to use it. I don't understand that. US intelligence agencies are claiming that the Chinese government is collecting American DNA. There is a race going on right now for biological data. Right now, COVID tests and DNA tracing websites are the most popular methods of gathering that data. And last but not least, the Maryland State Legislature has introduced a bill which regulates the use of genetic genealogy in criminal investigations. Under this proposed bill, cops can only use direct consumer or publicly available databases that provide explicit notice to customers. They can only use the data for criminal investigations or body ID, and they require a court order to obtain that information. Hopefully, those good aspects will stay in the bill, and hopefully this will set a trend for other states to implement similar controls over how law enforcement uses genealogy data. Moving to international politics. The Tory party has illegally collected data on the ethnicity of 10 million voters. Here's a quote from the article. The conservative party acted illegally when it collected data on the ethnic backgrounds of 10 million voters before the 2019 general election. However, there had been no need to issue an enforcement notice against the party as it had voluntarily deleted the data it held after a recommendation. That's kind of troubling. They collected the data illegally. It was quite frankly, racist data collection. Obviously, it dealt with the ethnic backgrounds of people. And, you know, we're not going to do anything because, well, they went ahead and deleted it when we asked them to. I don't understand the logic there. And in South Africa, South Africa is planning to record all babies' biometric data. South Africa is wanting to fingerprint and photograph every baby born to help prevent illegal citizenship and lower the number of undocumented children. Similar systems are already in use in other countries like India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. Experts are rightfully worrying about the risk of a data breach, and specifically they noted that in South Africa, they have been increasingly hit by cyber attacks, including a 2019 ransomware attack on the city of Johannesburg. Alright, let's move into FOSS news. A 10-year-old pseudo bug. Let's Linux users gain root level access. It is CVE 2021 3156, and it is known as baron samedit? Samedit? I'm not sure. Anyways, it allowed an attacker to gain root access even if the user account was not listed in the sudoers file. Basically, only certain users are allowed to do administrative functions, and this attack was able to get admin access even if they weren't one of those users. Fortunately, sudo 1.9.5p2 has been patched, so be sure to update. And as always, this story serves to remind us that Linux is not bulletproof by itself. And while Linux is great, and I totally recommend it whenever possible, it's still not a magic solution we've got two stories about telegram one good and one not so good so the good story is that telegram has released a feature that lets you import chat history from whatsapp that's pretty awesome whatsapp already has the ability to export the chat history and share it fortunately this does not appear to be any sort of like weakness in whatsapp being exploited or anything like that and it is one more reason to ditch whatsapp as telegram has now made it super easy the not so good story is that Facebook users' phone numbers are for sale through a bot on Telegram. This comes from a data leak back in 2019 as a result of a vulnerability that has since been patched. It allows customers to find a Facebook ID via a phone number or vice versa. So basically, if I have your Facebook ID, I can purchase a search through this bot, and figure out what your phone number is. And if I have a phone number, I can do the same thing and figure out what your Facebook is. Onto WhatsApp's other major competitors, Signal has added several mainstream features to try and lure in more audience members. They have added chat wallpapers, animated stickers, and even an about section to your profile. If those are something you value, you now have those extra features. And finally, a really big story that just happened this weekend, Unfortunately, it happened in time that we have a resolution, Element was suspended from the Google Play Store. Element is a Matrix client. If you're familiar with XMPP, it's very similar. Matrix is the actual protocol. Element is one of many apps that made it possible to connect to Matrix. Matrix is considered a very popular uh, free open source alternative to like Discord and Slack and things like that. So this weekend, Google kicked Element off the Play Store due to what it deemed to be abusive content on the default matrix.org home server. Fortunately, Element was able to get in touch with Google. They explained how the app works, basically like we are not associated with Matrix, it's not our fault, we just happen to be the most popular app. And they were able to open a line of communication with Google to prevent further disruptions like this. So now in the future, Google can just contact them directly. Fortunately, as a result of this explanation and this contact with Google, Element has been reinstated and is back on the, the Play Store. I think this story displays both a good thing and a bad thing. So the bad thing, it displays the dangers of having a closed ecosystem where users have to rely on a single source for apps, information, or pretty much anything. Fortunately, with Google, you have access to sideloading apps or alternate play stores like F-Droid. iOS doesn't really have that so much. On the plus side, though, this really did highlight the advantages of open source software and decentralization. Because even though the app itself wasn't available... Matrix still worked. Nothing went wrong with the Matrix protocol. There were still plenty of other apps out there. This was not a good story. It, fortunately, it ended well. It sucks that it happened at all, and it did show both some good things and bad things. Okay, finally, let's get to our misfits section. First up, we have a story from the BBC about why your face could be set to replace your bank card. So there are companies in the US, Denmark, and Nigeria that are starting to roll out facial recognition apps that are linked to your bank card. There are already similar systems that are hugely popular in China. Facial recognition is not very accurate for minorities and people of color. So already right off the bat, this system has a huge risk of practical non-privacy related issues like charging the wrong freaking person. And of course, it's also just a huge invasion of privacy. Now, to be honest, using your bank card is not really a whole lot more private. I'm sure that that's going to be abused in a matter of time. Don't sign up for this if you can avoid it. Try to steer clear. Something really interesting happened earlier this week. There was a major internet outage in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic states here in the U.S. The article says that users between Massachusetts and Northern Virginia had spotty internet access at best on Tuesday the 26th. This outage really particularly affected Gmail, Office 365, Slack, Zoom, Blackboard, Schoolology, and similar websites. The root cause appeared to have been a Verizon fiber cable that got cut in Brooklyn, New York. It is so fascinating how the actual hardware infrastructure of the World Wide Web works all around the world. We've got literal physical cables running from place to place that are probably the size of my whole body. Like, it's I'm so fascinated by the physical internet infrastructure. The personal lesson that I think was really driven home by this is to make sure that you have a non-internet plan to communicate if something with, like that happens. Whether it's a, a peer-to-peer app like Briar or Jami or... The point is to have a backup plan in place for both the internet and the cell if that stuff goes down. So Apple has released iOS 14.4 for iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch, and Apple TV. There's a major security update that came with this. There were three zero days that were being exploited in the wild. For those who don't know, zero days means it's a a vulnerability that the developer was not aware of that was being actively exploited in the wild. And I will be including a link to an article detailing those zero days because The initial 14.4 update didn't really mention, just kind of skimmed over that. If you're an iOS user, go ahead and update. There's some really important security updates there. And then we've got a few malware-related stories. First of all, Emotet has been severely crippled. I think that was a, a big story this week. Operation Ladybird involved the Netherlands, Germany, US, UK, France, Lithuania, Canada, and the Ukraine. And authorities seized two of three primary servers... And about 78 servers total from what we can tell. According to the article, quote, it is too soon to say how effective this operation has been in fully resting control over emotet, but a takedown of this size is a significant action, unquote. For those who don't know, emotet is currently one of the most widespread and aggressive malwares out there. A major hit like this, even if it doesn't fully get rid of it, is still a huge step forward in cybersecurity worldwide. And on a similar note, authorities are announcing that now that they have control over a significant amount of Emotet, they plan to mass uninstall the virus from infected hosts on March 25th. That's pretty good news. A couple other stories that got overshadowed because that was such a big story. There have been arrests and seizures related to the NetWalker ransomware. The US and Bulgarian authorities seized a website that was used by the gang NetWalker to publish stolen data. NetWalker has been a big problem. There are over 305 victims from 27 countries, mostly the US, mostly in things like cities, hospitals, law enforcement, and schools, and it has cost over $46 million in paid ransom so far. So again, good news. We're cracking down on this malware. Unfortunately, the last story is not quite so great news. Uh, TrickBot is back. So TrickBot is a banking trojan. And it was disrupted a few months ago. One thing that makes it so popular is that it is so highly versatile. And it can be modified to do pretty much anything from stealing credentials to self-propagating and even become ransomware. This comeback version is mainly targeting legal and insurance companies in North America. And it is mainly relying on phishing emails. So, as always, strong passwords, two-factor, and most importantly, be careful what you click. SellSell.com did a survey of iOS users and they found some pretty interesting statistics. They found that most users agree with Apple's latest privacy update, but they still don't really understand the value of privacy. So for example, 59% said that they would opt into being tracked if that's how the app delivered relevant content. 48% are open to being tracked if it means not losing access to content or features they currently enjoy. 74% said they would rather be tracked than pay for content or features that are currently free. Privacy is fortunately becoming more of a mainstream discussion in the world, and I think that's amazing, but this survey shows that unfortunately we still have a lot of work to go with people understanding the value of it fully. And last but not least, I have a good story to end on. The Phonics Cryptor ransomware gang has released their master decryption key. This group of of criminals... (laughs) has claimed that they're going to close up shop, and it looks like they're serious. Apparently some of their other accounts have been taken down, they've deleted their Telegram channel, and most significantly, they have shared the master decryption key for their software. So experts have looked at it, they say that it appears to be legit, but they are warning people not to use it until it has been fully vetted, because they want to make sure that it's not a trick to like sneak in some new malware variant in there, or something like that. And the gang, right before they broke up and shut everything down, they said that they're planning to use their skills for good in the future, whatever that means. So, I mean, that's that's really interesting and really cool, and hopefully they're serious and they're going to turn their lives around and start contributing to the world in a positive way using their clearly impressive skills. Okay, that is all we've got this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to learn more about any of these stories, the links will be in the show notes. If you are interested in learning more about privacy, please check out the Surveillance Report's parent website, TechLore, at TechLore.Tech, or I also have a website for beginners called TheNewOil.XYZ. A final thank you to all of the supporters who are helping make this possible and helping us push out content and bring privacy to the world. Thank you for listening and have a great week.